Thanks, guys. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're continuing our study through this letter of Paul, the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. That's what this letter is all about. So I want to begin this morning with a story of freedom. It's actually the greatest story of freedom ever told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. And God created human beings in His image, male and female, He created them, and they were free, completely free, without sin, without suffering, without pain. And then the story takes a bad turn. Adam and Eve disobey, and they're plunged with all humanity into sin and misery. They're in bondage. They're enslaved to sin and sorrow and death. But the God of freedom promises freedom through the coming of a Messiah who will crush the serpent's head. And then the God of freedom appears to Abraham and promises that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, will be offered freedom through Abraham, specifically through the seed of Abraham, the promised Messiah. And Abraham and Sarah are enabled to bear a child of promise when they were barren. Isaac is born, and then Jacob, and then Jacob and his 12 sons, and Joseph is sent ahead through a series of unfortunate events where he becomes second in power in Egypt only to Pharaoh. And Joseph is used by God to free his own family from bondage to famine, and he's able to provide the freedom of abundance. But then a Pharaoh comes who didn't know Joseph. And after many years, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And so the God of freedom raises up a man named Moses. And Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt through the miraculous power of God in the Red Sea. And they're free. until it's time to enter the promised land where God desires them to live in freedom with Him. And the people in the land, the inhabitants, they're, they're too strong in Israel's eyes. They're too big. They're too much for them. Israel doesn't believe that they have what it takes. And so they disobey God in unbelief. And they fall in to slavery for 40 years in the wilderness until that generation dies. But then the God of freedom raises up Joshua, and Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and the people of Israel live and enjoy freedom. And God raises up a king named David, and they, Israel as a nation never knew more freedom. And then Solomon, but then there's a divided nation, Israel to the north, Judah to the left, and there's different kings of different abilities and capacities, 
bad kings in Israel, at least some good kings in Judah. And God raises up prophets to point the people to the freedom that they can have in their God. But the people don't listen. And so the people, north and south, end up in slavery, in bondage, in exile. But God continues to send them prophets to point them to the coming hope of the freedom in Messiah. And then when the time was just right, the God of freedom sends the Messiah, born of a virgin, Jesus of Nazareth. And he obeys every law on behalf of his people. And then he dies a substitutionary death. But he rises from the dead. And he says, the spirit of freedom will soon be sent upon you. And at Pentecost, thousands of Jews in Jerusalem are gathered together. And the spirit of freedom falls. And the New Testament church is born. But after the spirit of freedom falls on the Jews, it's time for the gospel to go to the nations because the promise of freedom has to be brought to the Gentiles. And God raises up a man named Saul, the apostle of liberty, the man who preached the freedom of grace in ways that no one perhaps ever will. Well, about that time, Paul and Barnabas are at the second church, which is at Antioch. Jerusalem was the first church. The second large church of the early New Testament times was Antioch in Syria, just north of Israel. And the Holy Spirit has set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas go on what's called their first missionary journey. They go through the cities of southern Turkey, And they proclaim the gospel of freedom in Jesus Christ. And Gentiles are turning, non-Jews are turning to Messiah. Then Paul and Barnabas go back through those cities to disciple the new Christians. They come back to Antioch. When they're in Antioch, after their first journey, the apostle Peter comes up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And he's practicing fellowship with the Gentiles. Because remember, God gave Peter a vision in Acts 10. And Peter learned through a sheet of unclean animals that God declared foods clean. The dietary laws no longer apply, even to the Jews. But the deeper meaning was the Gentiles are also to be part of Israel, the new Israel, the church. And that Christians are to fellowship with every tongue, tribe, people, and language, and culture, and ethnicity. And so Peter comes to Antioch, and he practices the freedom in the gospel. He's eating with Gentiles. He's enjoying Jim and Nick's. He's having Bubba Gump shrimp. I mean, they are having a great time. Now, in Jerusalem, they're still working through freedom. You see, they're all Jews in Jerusalem. The Jewish church in Jerusalem is still wrestling through, what do we do with how we were as the Old Testament church? What do we do with the law, the dietary laws, the the feast days, social laws relating to how we relate with other people who are not Jews? Well, some of them were hardliners. 
And they believe that no one could be saved unless they put their hope in Messiah, who was Jewish, they said. Of course, he was. And they needed to become Jewish. So those guys came up to Antioch when Paul and Barnabas and Peter were all there. And when they came, Peter withdrew from fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And as a result, a lot of the other Jews who were Christians did the same thing. Paul stands up on a Sunday morning and rebukes Peter and all the rest who withdrew fellowship because it was given these guys, these hardliners, credibility that maybe Jesus isn't enough. And then those false teachers, feeling sort of condoned because of Peter's mistake, go through the churches of Galatia and spread the same gospel insecurity. Yes, Jesus is Messiah, but you tap into His work by becoming Jewish. Yes, Jesus came to deliver, but you have to tap into it by your own performance. So Paul writes this epistle of freedom to the Galatian churches after these false teachers have come in. And in doing so, he lays out the paradigm of freedom for the entire Christian life throughout the entire Christian world for all of Christian history. This is no small story. And this is no little letter. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along as I read Galatians 2, 11 to 21. This is God's Word. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, everything I just said should make sense now, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, in other words, you're enjoying pork and shrimp and eating with Gentiles, and not like a Jew, because Jews wouldn't do that, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Paul's saying, you're setting up these Gentiles to think these hardliners are correct. Goes on to say, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's using the common speech as Jews look down at Gentiles. Paul wasn't looking down on them, but that's how they were referred to. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then, then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Remember, church, this is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He is calling us through this book to gospel freedom. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for the story that You're writing, well, that You've already written and is now being lived out. God, remind us that we all have a part to play in that story. But remind us the key to the story, the hero of the story is Jesus, not us. And that the key to the gospel story is justification, is grace, is the finished work of Christ. So, Lord, we pray you'll open our ears and open our eyes and apply this text to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So one of the key verses in Galatians is Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. We're to stand firm in freedom. Easily said, done with much more difficulty. That's what this whole passage is about. Three ways we need to stand firm in freedom. First of all, stand firm in freedom against fear. This whole story that I tried to present in its context comes down to Peter being afraid. Look at verse 12. When these men came, saying they were from James, from Jerusalem to Antioch, he drew back from meeting with the Gentiles, and he separated himself. Okay, why? Because he feared the circumcision party. He feared those Jews who said they believed in Jesus, but said you needed to tap into the work of Christ through your own performance. Peter feared them. Now, we're not really told by Paul what he feared. It could be that he feared losing his influence in Jerusalem. That he feared these men bringing back a report to the Jews in Jerusalem. And the Jews in Jerusalem, listen, you need to realize, we have all this stuff worked out and thought through, and we have theologians written books on it. These, these poor new Christian uh, Jews have been converted at Pentecost they're figuring this stuff out. How, how does the Old Testament apply to the new? What does it mean for us to be Jews? What does it mean for them to be Gentiles? And what does it mean for us to be Christians? 
So, Peter was perhaps afraid that if these hardliners went back to Jerusalem and said, hey, man, Peter's like hanging out with Gentiles. He's eating pork and shrimp. I mean, we don't know what's happened to him, that he's afraid he'd lose influence. Another possibility is he's afraid for the Jerusalem church itself. He's afraid it'll cause a split, that, uh, you know, the, you become a Christian and all of a sudden, you know, pigs are flying. I mean, they, they're, they're trying to say, what, life is chaos. What's going on? They, they didn't know what to do. But also, the Jews in Jerusalem were persecuting the Christians already. See, the, the earliest persecution didn't come from Romans. It came from the Jews. And the Jews, the non-Christian Jews, were already riled up about what's happening with some Jews who are turning to Christ. And Peter could be afraid that if word gets back to the Jews that this Christian religion is not even really Jewish at all, he's afraid of the persecution. There, there are several reasons Peter is afraid. But you know the biggest reason Peter's afraid? Because he's like you and me. He's fallen. Fear is the result of the fall. Genesis 3, verse 10. Adam had eaten the fruit he was told not to eat. And he hid himself. God said, where are you? Here's Adam's reply, Genesis 3.10. I heard you and was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You see that? One of the first effects of our internal brokenness from the fall is that we experience fear. We all experience fear. We experience fear of exposure, fear of rejection, fear of isolation, fear of vulnerability. Fear of conflict, fear of intimacy, fear that I don't have what it takes, fear that I won't be loved, fear of pain, suffering, sadness. I could go on and on and on. Part of what it means to be fallen is to wrestle with fear. What are you afraid of today? Do you think about it? Do you talk about it? What's at stake as to whether you stuff your fears or face your fears? Because of the fall, there are two main ways in our sin we tend to deal with fear. One is we withdraw. The other is we dominate. Peter was a fearful man. I can relate. I'm a fearful man. When the chips were down and Peter was warming himself by the fire as Jesus was being tortured, a little tiny servant girl Asking one question caused Peter in fear to withdraw. 
I don't know the guy. In fear, Peter withdrew in denial. In Antioch, this whole passage, Peter withdrew in fear. How's fear causing you to withdraw today? Are you withdrawing in your marriage? Are you withdrawing from conflict? Are you withdrawing from a hard situation? Are you withdrawing from facing a difficulty? Are you withdrawing from a hard conversation? Are you withdrawing to avoid exposure or intimacy? Are you withdrawing from God? How's fear causing you to withdraw? Peter's fear caused a whole bunch of Gentiles in Antioch to wonder whether they really could be Christians. You see, our fear impacts others. It doesn't just impact us, it impacts others, and we need to face our fears. The other way Peter dealt with fear is domination, control. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Christ was betrayed, John 18, verse 10, Peter threatened, pulls out his sword and probably misses the, what he wanted to do, probably wanted to get, take the guy's head off, but took off Malchus's ear. How are you tempted to dominate in your fear? Dominate your spouse. Dominate your children. Let me tell you something. The greatest mistakes I ever met, made in parenting was when I parented out of fear. The greatest mistakes I ever made in, in leading the church was either failing to make a decision or too quickly making a decision because I was living in fear. Fear impacts not just yourself, but other people. The Gentiles in Antioch were deeply impacted. I would present the case that the Galatians were deeply impacted by Peter's fear because the hardliners were emboldened because they saw how Peter reacted. Maybe we're right. I mean, Peter, he's supposed to be a leader. He stopped meeting with the Gentiles. Maybe he knows we're right. But the Gentiles weren't the only ones that were impacted by Peter's fear. Look at verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. Even Barnabas, the text goes on to say, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Fear unaddressed hurts other people. What fears do you need to have God address in your life today? Unaddressed. It will bring harm. But look what Paul did in verse 14. I saw that their conduct was not in line with the truth of the gospel. Public rebuke. Again, it appears on a Sunday morning in front of everybody. The church is gathered. The elders, Paul, Barnabas, Peter is there. 
Paul stands up and says, hey, you're condemned. It's pretty strong language. Why would Paul be so riled up? Because the gospel's at stake. Folks, you don't mess around with the message of the gospel. Remember how Paul started Galatians? If anybody preaches a gospel other than one we preach to you, remember the Greek literally says, if anybody gospelizes to you a gospel other than the gospel we gospelize to you, let him be accursed. Paul is ready to pick a fight. And you know, so are many Christians today. But when's the last time you saw somebody pick a fight over grace? Well, I see lots of people picking fights with people who emphasize grace. But when's the last time you saw a Paul rebuke somebody because they weren't living in line with grace. Think about this. Paul calls Peter and Barnabas, Barnabas is his best friend. He calls them hypocrites. What do you think of when you think of a hypocrite? I'll tell you what you think of because it's what I think of. It's what evangelicals think of. You think of a guy who says he's a Christian and is dishonest in business all the time. What a hypocrite. You think of a guy who's a, a deacon or an elder in the church, and he is completely insensitive and oblivious to the needs of his wife. What a hypocrite. I could go on and on. But we think of a hypocrite as someone who says they're a Christian and lives like the world. And don't get me wrong, that is a hypocrite. That is not the hypocrite Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the hypocrisy that says, you say you believe the gospel of God's amazing grace, and you are betraying it because you're giving the impression that more than grace is involved in someone knowing Jesus and experiencing his love. Paul is furious. But I get Peter. I've been afraid. As we've emphasized grace in this church, I've heard the talk. I've been called crazy. I've been told I'm off the rails. And guess what? There have been times I've backed down. There have been times I dialed it back. And I'm ashamed of those times. We cannot let a bunch of hardliners intimidate us into compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just for justification, which we're going to talk about. They would probably agree with us on that. But see, if, if you start putting in all kinds of little tangents and taboos 
about what Christians can or cannot do when the Bible's not necessarily even clear on it, pretty soon people begin to judge their conversion based on their Christian life. And now we're in trouble. You read Harry Potter, you can't be a Christian. You're a Democrat, there is no hope for you. You see what I mean? And it's easy to get intimidated by hardliners instead of saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the gospel. And you're a hypocrite, not me. So how do we deal with our fear that could turn us into hypocrites with respect to grace? Well, there's only one way, and that's the very gospel that Peter was undermining by his actions. It's our only hope. Our only hope for anything, our only hope for transformation is the gospel. How do you get to heaven? The gospel. How are you transformed from day to day? The gospel. The message doesn't change. You trust Christ to deliver you from hell, and you trust Christ to deliver you daily from sin. So how are you delivered from fear? You bring your fear in honesty to Jesus. You don't hide it. You don't pretend it's not there. You don't stuff it. You don't read a book about ten ways the world says you deal with fear. You bring your fear to Jesus. And you lay it at His feet. And then let me tell you what else you do. You talk about it in a small group that you trust. What would have happened in Antioch and therefore Galatia if Peter would have said, Hey, Paul, can we talk? I'm scared. I'm scared of what these guys are going to do to my ministry. I'm scared of what they're going to say to people who I know are my friends. I'm scared about the possibility of persecution for the church in Jerusalem. What am I supposed to do? I feel like running. I feel like just playing their game. You know, just let's just back off. And, and Paul would have said, oh, my friend, <laughs> we can't do that. You give them an inch, you give them a mile. No, we got to fight. Think about the difference, how this all would have worked out. What are you afraid of? How do you deal with it? What's the cost of not dealing with it? Stand firm in freedom against fear. Secondly, stand firm in freedom against legalism. You know, that's really what this whole passage is about, isn't it? Legalism. Certain men from James, verse 12, hardliners from the Jerusalem church, staunchly pro-Jewish, staunchly pro-law. Matter of fact, in Acts 15, verse 1, we find out what these men are saying, quote, unless the Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they cannot be saved. Boom. That's legalism. Legalism is trying to add anything other than the finished work of Christ to the message of salvation. You see, the message of salvation is Christ has done it all. Legalism is that you contribute something 
you do to enter into what Christ has done. Now, do you see how subtle that is? Do you see how subtle that is? You, you can begin to add all kinds of things. And I see it in the evangelical world all the time. These, these subtle little expectations of spirituality that then begin to creep into what it even means to be a Christian. And pretty soon you've lost the gospel. Pretty soon you're headlong into legalism. And this is why Paul is so upset with Peter. Paul even acknowledges in verse 15, there's great advantage to being a Jew. Just like there's great advantage of growing up in the church. There's great advantage of being a covenant child. But being a covenant child doesn't save you. The only thing that rescues us from sin and hell and death is transferring our trust from ourselves, repenting of all the idols that, that we have looked to as, as Jesus supplements or, 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 or what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, substitutes, thank you. And trusting and hoping in Jesus alone. So Paul says, yeah, there's some advantages of being Jewish, but look what he says in verse 16. Yet, still, we know, Peter, you know and I know, we. Notice he says we. He's still talking to Peter. We know. We who are Jews by birth, verse 15. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. This is the first time in Galatians that Paul uses the word justify. You guys know what that means because we talk about it all the time. To be justified is to be declared in a courtroom of God that you are right with Him based solely on the obedient life of Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ that you receive with the empty hands of faith contributing nothing but your sin. Justification is God declaring the ungodly righteous. Not the ungodly who are trying to be godly, and now they can be confident that they're righteous in God's eyes. No. God declares instantaneously the ungodly who repents and trusts in Christ. He declares them righteous. Bang the gavel, walk out of the courtroom. That is justification. And that is exactly what the Gentiles in Acts, in Antioch, were led to doubt. Oh, I thought it was, Paul said it was just Jesus alone. Well, sort of, but, you know, you, you, need to, you need to put yourself in the proper context that you'll be able to you know, experience those benefits of Jesus. You, you need to become Jewish. What have you heard people add? You need, you need, you need Jesus plus anything is hell. Paul is upset. You see, it's not our law keeping 
that gives us a standing of righteousness before God. It's Christ's law-keeping. It's not what we do, it's what Christ has done. You see, the legalists want to focus on what we do. The gospel focuses on what Christ has done. What's your worldview, folks? Are you a do or a done? It comes out, it's as simple as that. Are you a do or are you a done? If you're a do, you're lost. If you're a done, resting in the promise of God, you are justified. You see, it's not our record of righteousness. It's not our record building. It's Christ's record of righteousness declared over us as we lift up the empty, undeserving, ungodly hands of faith. God justifies the ungodly. See, Peter's actions created all kinds of doubts, lack of assurance. You ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? World War II, there's this family. They have three sons. All three are in war, World War II. They get word two of the sons have already been killed. The chief general decides we can't have them lose three. Not that some families didn't, but stepped in. And they, they create orders that will get this guy, Private Ryan, out of the line of duty, into an area of safety, and on a plane home so that his mother wouldn't have to face the loss of three sons. A guy named Tom Hanks is the captain of the group that's to get Private Ryan, to save Private Ryan. It takes all kinds of sacrifice, blood, sweat, tears. They finally get Private Ryan to the place where he's going to be safe and able to get on a plane to go home. The captain, Tom Hanks, has been mortally wounded. He's laying there dying, and he pulls Ryan into his face. And with his last breath, with all he can muster, he says, Earn this. Earn this. And I'm amazed at the number of Christians that think, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, let's go out and live for Jesus. Well, we should want to go out and live for Jesus, right? But that's terrible theology. Let me change the context. Jesus is on the cross. And as he looks down at everybody in the cross, the last thing before he breathes his last is, earn this. Is that what he said? No. He hung on the cross. He mustered his last bit of strength. He looked to heaven. And he said, it is finished. It is done done, not earn this, not prove yourself worthy of this, it is finished. We need to be careful we don't put conditions on the gospel. Well, if you're following me so far, I hope you're a little uncomfortable. Ooh. I didn't realize free grace was that free. 
Well, that leads to our third point. Stand firm in freedom against self-reliance. Verse 17, if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? You need to know what's happening here. At this point, Paul is thinking about the critics who say, wait a minute, Paul. And guess what? You might be in here right now. You might be thinking this right now. Bob, if what you're saying is true, there is absolutely no motivation to live an obedient life. If what you're saying is true, why not continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, isn't that interesting? That's exactly what people said to Paul. When Paul preached the gospel that I just proclaimed, the response was, well, then what does it matter how I live? Shall we continue in sin? Is Christ a servant of sin? By the way, in Romans 6 and Galatians 2, Paul uses the same Greek words, meganoita, may it never be. Interesting. What he's saying there is, no, don't continue in sin. No, Christ isn't our servant of sin. But the legal are saying, but what are we supposed to do? There's no motivation here for godliness or holiness or obedience. You've just preached free grace. Surely we need to add the law. Surely we need a rigorous application of the will to the law in order for us to become the people we're supposed to be. And so Paul does something really, really interesting. In verse 18, he says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What? That's not even what they're asking. They're saying, Paul, how do we guard against antinomianism? No law. How do we guard against license? How do we guard against being a libertine? And Paul in verse 18 says, well, I'm guarding against legalism. You didn't answer my... Yeah, he did answer the question. If I rebuild what I tore down, the law, if I rebuild the law as the paradigm for Christian living even, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If you rebuild a legal system to get your sense of the Father's delight, the sense of the Father's acceptance. Paul says you're rebuilding what the gospel tears down. Paul says, you want to talk about vice? I do too. Let's talk about the vice of law. You want to talk about sin? So do I. Let's talk about the sin of self-indulgence of the flesh by pursuing the law. See, Paul is saying the flesh has two sides. There's the religious side of the flesh just as much as there's the irreligious side of the flesh. There's the self-reliant side of the flesh as much as there's the self-indulgent side of the flesh. And so Paul says in verse 18, we got to watch out for legalism as much as we need to watch out for antinomianism. Now, don't think for a second we don't watch out for antinomianism. I haven't answered the question yet because Paul hasn't answered it yet. But the answer is not going to be what you think it is. Verse 19 is the answer. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What Paul is saying is the law pointed to Christ. And the law pointed to Messiah. And when I trusted in Messiah, and if you've trusted in Messiah, you died supernaturally, 
in Christ. The Spirit has baptized you into Christ, and you have died supernaturally. The person you were born as physically has somehow mystically, in the spiritual realm, died. And as a result, that person who was under sin's rule is dead. That person who was under sin's condemnation is dead. And a resurrection has taken place. See, the Christian life, is, this stuff is nutso unless we believe the Christian life is supernatural. This isn't make-believe, people. This really, if you know Jesus, this really happened. You're not the same person. You don't have the same heart. You don't have the same nature. You have been dead and you've been resurrected. And so what's Paul saying to the answer to antinomianism? It's impossible. That's his answer. It's impossible. It is impossible for a person who has turned in repentance and faith from themselves to Christ. It is impossible to fall into antinomianism for a lifetime. Why? Because you have a new heart. You have a new nature. You have new desires. You have a new power. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the church of Jesus Christ. If you're in a biblical church under biblical teaching, it is impossible. Look, you know the other thing we've done? Ironically, we've taken away the power of justification and the wonder of grace. And at the same time, what we've done is believed everybody's a Christian if they've walked an aisle. Folks, you got family members I know you want to believe the best of. But if, but if they're living in unrepentant sin, you might as well change your prayer that they'd come to Christ. Even if they keep telling you they, they walked an aisle when they were 17. It is impossible, Paul says, to continue unrepentantly in sin and be a Christian. That's Paul's answer to the legalist who says, Paul, you've taken away every motivation for obedience with this doctrine of free grace. Paul says, you don't understand free grace. Free grace doesn't just change your status. It changes your nature. The message of grace is not just the message of unconditional love. The message of grace is the message of supernatural transforming power. And what changes our lives is running back to Jesus again and again and again. Not self-reliance. Not a rigorous application of the will to try harder. But running to Jesus in our failure. The same way we ran to Jesus for our justification. We keep running to Jesus in our sanctification. The same that converts us, the same things that transforms us. Now, that's not to say that there aren't elements of responsibility that we're called to. We talk about those all the time. So Paul is saying, deal with your fear, face it, bring it to the cross, share with others about it, avoid legalism, keep believing the gospel is the gospel of free grace, and recognize that if you've been converted, you're a new creation. You have the Spirit of God in you. And the answer to antinomianism is not adding in the law. The answer to antinomianism is to keep preaching biblical grace. Now, 
if we're settled on who we are in Christ, for those of you who are members here, you understand the waltz, the three-step, repent, believe, fight. There is a use of the law that we don't judge our position with God over, but it does show us the aim of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The rest of Galatians, we're going to be walking in this tension of what is the gospel, what is the law? What is the place of the gospel? What is the place of the law in the gospel? The stuff that the early church had to figure out. We are so blessed to have had others go before us. We are so blessed to walk in the freedom of the gospel. And then one day, Jesus will return. And Martin Luther King gets this from Jesus. We will be free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. Free at last. Let's pray. Lord, this is a lot of material, a lot of minutes, but Father, uh, what could we cut? And so we pray that you would enable us to remember, you would enable us um, to apply. Lord, if there's anyone here that is not a believer, they now understand the gospel, might they turn to Jesus? Lord, if there's anybody here that's been stuck in a lack of assurance, Because conditions have been placed on the gospel, Lord, we pray they would rest in Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody here who thinks they're a Christian, but they're living uh, like the world, God, bring holy conviction and help them to wrestle with the incongruity of being a new creation and yet uh, not caring about sin. Lord, thank you that you've thought of everything. Help us to be a church who truly walks the gospel-driven, Christ-centered life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Here at Benediction. And yes, that may be the longest sermon I ever gave at Oak Mountain. But what are you going to do? Fire me? (laughs) Receive the promise of God's favor upon your lives. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and all.